I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Dance legend John Lowe is coming up on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. But do you know what Patreon is? Well, I just want to tell you about it because Patreon is a crowdfunding website. It's a platform to help creators all across the world get funding for their projects. And we have now put the best in the world with Richard Parr on Patreon. So if you would like to support us for as little as $1 a month, then you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash best in the world. That's patreon.com forward slash best in the world. And if you start contributing more than a dollar, there's lots of extra benefit for you other than just this podcast every single week where you learn from Olympic champions, world champions, world record holders and world number ones. And just quickly do the maths. Let's say that there's four episodes in one month and you're paying one dollar a month. You're paying 25 cents a week that's 25 cents an episode to learn from the very best in the world and you know sometimes you can't put a price on knowledge and at the moment we are we're doing it for one dollar a month we're doing it for 25 cents an episode so if you can find it in the goodness of your hearts to help support our podcast please go to patreon.com forward slash best in the world all right, on this week's episode, episode 77 of The Best in the World with Richard Parr, we are speaking to the former dance world champion, John Lowe. He is really one of the innovators of the sport. Old Stoneface talks about a whole range of topics on this week's podcast, including him becoming the first player ever to achieve a nine-dart finish on television. That's back in 1984. He also talks about his rivalry and now his friendship with Eric Bristow. He talks about that nickname, Old Stoneface, plus his role in forming the Professional Darts Corporation. It's a fascinating story. And John even talks about the time he was fed snake by fellow darts player Paul Lim. It's a very funny story. And that's all coming up with John Lowe. And in fact, it's coming up next here on The Best in the World. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. John Lowe, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. So delighted that you are our first darts player 
on the program, a three-time world champion. John, so great to have you on the show. Let's start by just catching people up with what you're up to at the moment, please. Well, I'm still heavily involved in darts um, at a different level. Obviously, I'm not competing on the the big circuit anymore. Uh, I, I finished that a few years ago. But I'm still doing exhibitions. Uh, I'm tied up quite a lot with Mike Millen Nurses Charity, where I'm spending a lot of time um, down south at the moment, where we do many, many, many shows and raise quite a lot of money for me. And that's rewarding, very rewarding. So I'm still active, still within the game. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's always uh, good to give back. And uh, did I see also that you've got an app as well out? I have. It's... Um, I've actually had one or two apps, but not not like this one. I've had one, the Art of Darts, that was totally a coaching app. Uh, but this one's more, it's a game. It was, it was uh, brought about by a guy called Ben Holmes from Chesterfield, where I live. Uh, he produced it and wanted me, well, he didn't produce it. He actually designed it. Someone else produced it. Uh, it's called John Lowe's Darts Arcade, and there's 10 games within it. Uh, that you use darts, but you don't throw them conventionally. You just sort of shove them up the screen. It's an iPhone, iPad app at the moment, uh, and I'm pleased to say it's doing really well. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll put a link to that on the uh, description page of this podcast as well, so for anyone who hasn't downloaded it yet, they can do that as well. Um, With the art of darts, of course, uh, I was looking at a few YouTube videos earlier as well, and um, there was one in particular where you were giving your your tips for for darts players and things like that. One of the things about you is you had what some people call like the perfect throwing technique, and I'd like to just talk about that for a moment. And what is the one thing you think that a lot of darts players fail to do, but would actually make them a lot more consistent in their action? Well, they. The stance where they stand at the throwing line, the hockey, is slightly wrong. If they're too face on to the board, then when, when their elbow then, right-handed or left, will protrude out. And that's the big letdown of nearly all. That's the difference between being good and very good. And mm. it's also the difference between being proficient and efficient. And it's all about keeping the elbow in. It, 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 you can relate it to snooker, really, where the the cue action, the elbows vertical uh, from the cue. And it's the same with darts. If that elbow's out, when they bring the arm back to throw the dart, the elbow wobbles around. And it, it makes, it's only a small margin between treble 20 and treble 1. And mm. if you can eliminate that as much as you can, then you're going to be a better player. With your consistent style, have you seen anyone perform in the last few years, perhaps, who have got such a different style to you, but are just as successful? I have. I have, yes. Um, whether they'll be successful with longevity, uh, I mean, Phil Taylor self-admits that he copied my style. He had his own style, but then he brought in parts of my style, mm. which has kept him going for 20-odd years and 16 world titles. Uh, I'm not taking the blame for that, the credit for that, <laughs> but it's nice to know, and... And then you've got Michael Van Gerwen, who's the top of the tree now, completely different, leans right forward, throws so fast that time to think, it, it eliminates that from the game. 
Uh, but will he carry on for as long as, as myself and Taylor? Mm. We'll have to wait and see. And you mentioned there about Phil was watching and, and took uh, lessons from your uh, stance and, and, and your style. Who were some of the players that you would kind of learn from when you were starting to play? I, I had a close friend in Chesterfield called Barry Twomlow. Uh, he won the News of the World in 1979. And he was, I would say, a mentor. Uh, not possibly with his style, because he had a, a very hard-throwing style. Very, uh, It was easy, though. He, he didn't put any strain on his back apart from his body that in years to come you wouldn't be able to play. Um, but I did learn a lot from him, a lot. Hmm. Now... On this podcast, I've interviewed all different types of sports stars from all the different Olympic sports. And one of the common themes is that a lot of them play in their, their early years, six, seven, eight. A lot of rowers are the, the one kind of exceptions where they, they play more, they start more around 18, 19. Is it true that you got your first real start in darts at the age of 21? I never threw a dart till I was 21. Wow. I, I didn't... Yeah, it's. I'm from a very religi- religious background, and so uh, first and foremost, it was a church upbringing. Uh, and then when I did get to, like, the 16, 17 mark, I started racing clubmen, racing motorcycles. And th- that's... I was really wrapped up in that. And then I happened to... One afternoon, I was going to a racetrack, and it was snowing, so I called in a local pub, Someone asked me, he was going to the toilet, he said, will you take my throw? And then i played ever since. Wow. And was it just a, a real love for the game immediately? Uh, no, no. Again, I'm a carpenter by trade, a joiner. And, and that's a very accurate trade. Uh, with hand tools and like electric tools, it's very accurate. You have to saw on a line. And I, I thought this darts. I, was, I tried everything I could to make it easy, <laughs> eliminate everything except hitting the target. Mm. And I messed around with stems and cut flights down, and and eventually I, I managed to get these things going where I wanted them without too much effort. Oh, wow. I, I, I think that was a... I suppose it's very similar to a, to a soccer player taking penalty after penalty after penalty. It's a similar thing, you know, but... Um, the coordination between the hand eye and the arm um, it must relate to most sports mm. so how long did that take you how long did it take for you to realize that you were really good at this and this was something which you could take seriously and compete in major championships well I always took it seriously because even though there's nothing in it there's no money you'd play in a local league and at the end of the season you, you'd win a a Japanese alarm clock or a tea service or something like that. Um, and so you didn't get anything monetary, not really. And I always believed it would always be a pastime. And then along came a darts organisation, the British Darts Organisation, put it on television. Uh, and from there on, money came in. And then, I have to be honest, I was really interested then because you can't spend trophies. <laughs> and, you know, and... and once the money side came in, I started actually playing seriously. I used to play about five hours a day for no reason. Then I started playing five hours a day for a reason. And I think that made the difference. 
Let's have an idea then, John. Uh, this is one of the things I really like to cover on this program. Give us an idea of a, a typical training day, what it would be like for you, what time you'd get up, perhaps what you, you were even eating through the day, where you would go, how many hours practice you would you do, what types of practice would you do. Just give us a, a sense of what was a, a typical training day back in, in your prime. Well, if, if I was pre that, when I was still a carpenter going to work, in the winter, we couldn't do anything until, until it came light. Mm-hmm. So I'd actually get up and play in the morning an hour and a half before, before I went to work. And then at lunchtime, I'd visit a pub and play darts while I had something to eat. And then at night time, I'd be in a league. So unconsciously, I'd probably be playing six hours a day. Wow. But then when it became a profession, uh, you're on the road traveling quite a lot. So you, you, you don't actually get as much time to practice you, when, but when you do you've got to make it a serious practice session um, not throwing at treble 20 all the time that that becomes well a bore practice is boring for, I think for all sports uh, but I used to be a big believer in going round the doubles hour after hour just double one double two double three uh, because if you can't finish you can't play the game <laughs> and then I, I spent two months uh, just throwing a bullseye along. Never threw anything other than bullseye. Oh, wow. Now, speaking of that, and, and just going back to what you were saying about the consistency of being like other sports, like taking penalties all the time, um, one of the guests I've had on this program before was the Olympic champion in clay pigeon shooting, a guy called Richard Foles, who won it in 2000. And he was talking about when he won in the 2000 final and he beat the reigning champion and a bit like darts he said when you're clay pigeon shooting all you're doing is you're shooting at the same target you know when it's coming you know how to do it you've got the hand-eye coordination technique and he said what the difference was that he won on that day is that his opponent had almost like a little mental breakdown He, he couldn't concentrate how important is the psychology side for a darts player, but more importantly, what made you better than other people at it? Uh, well, a lot of games are won because the other guy loses. Um, mm. That's that's a known fact. I mean, I played Eric Bristol at Jolly's in the World Championships, and I was three sets to nil up. Now, it, it, to me, that was impossible to lose that match, and I did. I lost the match. And it wasn't that he played any better. I just dropped off and didn't play as good. So it's, it's what you say, keeping that concentration, it, it's, that's the most important thing. It, it's got to be there all the time. Um, don't really play the other guy. Play the dartboard itself. Play your game. If you're in front, you've got to stay in front and finish. And it's many. I've seen many a game, especially Phil Taylor's opponents, where Phil's just been too good for them, and they've dropped off. He's won quite a few world titles, in my opinion, that the other guy just lost. Mm. Did you always find it easy to kind of shut off the noise of the crowd? Uh, no, I never did, and I can't understand anyone who says that they never hear them. <laughs> I, I played at uh, Alexandra Palace in the News of the World finals, and there was 21,000 in there that day. Wow. And it was impossible not to hear them. I mean, you know... The, the the saving grace is that we're not facing them. You, you, you've got the back to the audience and you're looking at the board, so that helps a little. Uh, but 
you can't block the noise out, I don't think. Was there anything uh, funny at all, which the crowd may have said before, which had caught you kind of off your guard and made you lose your concentration at all? I tried not to. I got the reputation of being called Old Stoneface for that reason. Mm. Because what I used to do, I used to concentrate right up until I'd actually picked the trophy up for winning under check, and then everything would change. I'd be a different person. But while ever I was on that stage, and a lot of the time you play, you're playing against good friends. They're not, they're not enemies. They're good friends. But while you're playing them, uh, you could really say that they they become a foe. <laughs> yeah, you definitely want to beat them. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned there about facing people, and you had quite the the rivalry over the years with Eric Bristow. And uh, co- please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe he'd beaten you in three world championships before you finally beat him in the '87 uh, final. Was there anything you did differently when you faced him, or was it just your day that day? Uh, no, that day I was quite a lot better than him. But, and, some, and some of the others, I mean, I was in the world final eight times and mm. only won three. Uh, I believe I should have won five and lost three. I think that's the way, looking back on it, and uh, two of them should definitely have been against Eric. Uh, but our rivalry, it wasn't just the world final, it was all over the world. That was fierce rivalry. Mm. And yet, we played for England, world pairs and team, and we played together as, as a team. We played absolutely... A lot of people thought we didn't like each other, but if truth's known, we're actually going holiday together now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, so that's amazing. That That is lovely. Do you think, because of this rivalry, it both it, it improved both of your performances and results? I do, yeah. It kept us on his toes. And one of, one of us was in the world final 11 years in a row. Um, which is quite a, a record. And uh, the last book that I wrote, I looked at all the statistics, and there was only 0.3 difference in averages over 27 years. Wow. So it's, it, that's incredible. And when people say the game's now, the standard's a lot higher, we haven't had an average over all that time of uh, 29.9, which is near enough 90 or 30. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oh, that's, that's colossal. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We'll be back with John in just a moment. And if you're enjoying this podcast or you've enjoyed some of the previous episodes, I would love it if you can help support our show on our new crowdfunding page. It's at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash best in the world. You can contribute to keep this podcast going for as little as $1 a month. It's not really very much money, is it, for the amount of amazing knowledge that we get from these Olympic and world champions. That address again is patreon.com forward slash best in the world. All right, let's return to the conversation with the darts world champion, John Lowe. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. One of the things I like to talk about on this podcast with a lot of the athletes and sports stars is about their diet. It is about what they're eating. And, of course, people look back at um, darts and they, they see that players used to drink uh, alcohol on the hockey, on the stage, Um a lot of the the players were a little bit overweight and you you were someone who was always pretty slim when competing did you ever think about what you were eating back then did did that that make any difference do you think uh, yes i do because if you're traveling i mean in those days our, all our money was made in exhibitions so we were basically traveling every day and then when you'd finished at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, the only place that was open was either an Indian restaurant or a Chinese. There were none of the food that were really healthy for you, <laughs> uh, and especially at 12 o'clock in the morning. And so I, I purposely tried to change what time I ate. And I, I used to eat religiously if I could about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but then I was okay till breakfast. I, as for drinks, uh, when it came originally darts onto TV, they really just took the game out of the pub and put it on TV. <laughs> and so they brought everything with it. And and it was never banned. The alcohol was never banned by the government or, or smoking on television. It was banned by the Darts Association. They did it themselves 10 years before the government ever introduced it. So they did take the right steps. Mm-hmm. Talking about television, we have to talk about you being the first player to do a nine dart finish on TV, I believe it was 1984. Uh, tell me about that experience, John, because it it's just such an incredible feat. It was, and and the the more I look back on it, I've always thought the world to win the world championship was the biggest thing. But if now looking back on it years later, I realised that the nine dart game actually did make me world known in darting circles. Uh, 
and since the introduction of YouTube, um, even bigger. Mm. But it was, when I look at it, the lads doing it on TV now and then doing it then, the dartboard now, is this target area is 14% bigger now because the wires are razor blade thin, whereas we had uh, big round wires with staples holding them onto the board. and It was a lot harder, it was a lot more difficult. Um, for me personally, there was... There was four or five players expected to do it uh, within five or six years. And it never happened. And I was the one that came out that day, the 13th of October, uh, and, and put the old perfect game together. Mm-hmm. How many times do you think you, you've done it in competition? Um, I've never actually accepted any other nine dark game because I've never done it in a serious competition. Might have oh, done wow. it. Yeah, I mean, I have done it quite a few times, mm. but I haven't actually done it in what I regard as a competition of any note. Um, and and it wasn't done again for a few more years. And Paul Lim followed it up on BBC about um, six years later. Mm. Uh, mentioning Paul Lim, this is a, a little bit of a, an aside here, but while doing my research, um, Paul Lim, I believe, is also a very well-trained chef. And did I read a story correctly here, John, that he once uh, served you rat? (laughs) I think he claimed that. I mean, I I did visit Singapore, and uh, he did serve me snake, I will tell you that. Oh, wow. That's for sure. Uh, And I was quite... it, It was unbelievable how it tasted. It tasted as nice as lobster, and that's... Oh, wow. Quite an incredible story. This was traditional Chinese, uh, sorry, Singaporean cooking, where the snakes were on, hanging on poles around the back of the of the restaurant. Oh my goodness! And they brought it in and showed you it, and uh, and it was quite quite an experience. They slipped the top of the snake and pushed the little sack out, which was the poison in it, to show you it hadn't burst and gone into the snake. Mm. And then they asked you how I wanted it cooking, and Paul cooked it, and. <laughs> I said lobster, and it came with like round looking balls, white meat, and tasted gorgeous. Oh wow! I was yeah. in I was in Kenya uh, a few weeks ago from when we we're having this conversation, and uh, I actually got to try oxen's testicles, which yeah, I, I wouldn't oxen. recommend. No, no, <laughs> not not very healthy, and, and 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 definitely not the type of food you were probably eating when you were competing. But let, let's move on from that <laughs> little uh, side topic we were talking about there, John and. Of course, you had your success in the in the World Championships, and one of the other key parts of your career was your involvement and your influence in creating what is now the PDC, breaking away from the the BDO. Just tell us a little bit about that time, John, and and how that all came about, and and your involvement in it. Well, I was I was involved in. in in a big way, for the simple reason, we'd formed a players' association uh, with its objectives of a, a meeting with a British Darts organisation and discussing how we could take the game forward. Because we were down to like two tournaments a year. We only had uh, the World Championship and the World Masters. We had England, we were playing for England, but we didn't get any monetary chance. So to make money as a professional, we needed more tournaments on TV. So we, the, the talks came to nothing. So one day we decided we'd, we'd 
breakaways. The 16 top players would break away. Um, with the help of a couple of organisers, we couldn't do it on our own, mm. and formed the World Darts Council. That's how it, the PDC was originally known. And of course, it was a it changed the old old darts game completely. First of all, it turned nasty, and they they suspended us for two years. Uh, that affected us livelihood. And then we we went to court with a um, restriction of trade against them, of which we won hands down. Uh, although no one got any money or anything out of it, all, all we did was collectively lost about a quarter of a million. Oh, wow. And then along, again, it wasn't going well. Uh, the World Arts Council was struggling, struggling to bring money and sponsors in. And then the guy called Barry Ern appeared on the scene and and he turned it round. With his help of his matchroom um, expertise, they turned it round. And now we've got what is a, in this country alone, it's six million pound prize money this, this year. Yeah, it's 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 crazy the expansion of sport. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in in just a moment. Why didn't the BDO want more events on TV? Because you know, sitting here, it's all very easy me sat here, but looking twenty five years ago, surely it just makes sense to put more uh, events on TV, doesn't it? What what was their opposition to it? They didn't. No, they didn't have any opposition to it. Uh, what they did have, they didn't have the expertise. They didn't have a plan to bring in sponsorship. Uh, they was set, settled with the people who had always been with them. Uh, they'd not gone out and sought um, new sponsors to come on board or change the formats. I mean, some what was happening on TV. Someone would say to me in the street. Uh, that tournament, it's not finished yet. I see it's still on because it was the same format all the time. And, of course, they thought it was the same one carrying on the next week. And so it needed somebody to come in with a plan. And the BDO, they, they just didn't have a plan. They, well, the only plan they had was that if, if the game went, it w- would go. they would go with it completely instead of um, putting it out to a, a, a promotional company that could push it forward. Mm. And you mentioned there about the the prize funds now being up to six million pounds, and there's events now all across the world from Las Vegas, Australia. How proud are you of having a little part in that history of, of helping create what what is going on now? I'm very proud. I mean, I was the chairman and the secretary of the Professional Players Association to an extent where I even did the the books for companies out house for eight years and kept it running I said that would have folded as well that's a stressful uh, job in itself it was and so I was, I was really pleased about that but I will say that when when we split I was a world champion so I didn't get a chance to defend the, the embassy as it was called then uh, but Peter Dyke at embassy rang me one day and he offered, he tried to split the pact and he offered me £20,000 to go back and do a few shows for embassy and if I'd have left the 16 and gone back the Sky TV thing would never have happened because they were, the players would have disintegrated. So in one way, I look back on it and I'm proud, but in another way, I sometimes think, did I do the right thing there? Are you slightly envious of what's going on now? Do you wish that this was happening back in your era? Do you wish that you were able to compete at around the world now as well? Uh, no, no, I'm not. And... Uh, and I can speak for Eric Bristow as well on that. We're both the same. We both say, look, 
we did what we did. We brought the game to the masses. Uh, and unfortunately, it didn't fizzle out and fade away. So we, we can honestly say the success of the game around the world now, we did, we did contribute to it. And we are getting asked because of its success now. We do get asked to do appearances. I do go along with Jack Miller, the cricketer, who lives not far around the corner from me. I do a few shows with him in London where we do sporting dinners and things like that. That would never have happened if, if, the, if the game wasn't in the forefront like it is now. Mm, and one of the things which is very famous with darts these days is uh, a lot of the entrance music and everything like that. And of course, yours was Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Was that something you chose and did it help you at all? Did it help pump you up for any performance or did you almost like switch off to that? Uh, no, I, it didn't didn't help in a way. And I watched some of them on TV and they were nervous when they walked down, taking them five minutes to get to the stage. But it put a bit of glamour onto the game. It, it, it put something into it that I, I see now Snooker's copied it. So, and, and it seems to work for Snooker. It seems to be, brings a bit more light-heartedness to it before the battle commences, as it were. And I, and I think dance has uh, it's n- not got its characters that we had when there was myself, Jockey Wilson, Leighton, Reese, Eric, Big Cliff, Lazarenko. It's not quite got them characters, but it has brought some glamour to it that wasn't there. Do you think, if darts was to continue to grow, what would be some of your recommendations you think it could do to to keep getting bigger and better? Well, again, I think it's time to change the format. We, I did the first nine dart game, which was 501. Uh, it's been done on TV so many times in the last decade that no one puts any money up for it at all now. It's like a rolling pot. Whatever's in the pot, the winner gets it. Uh, it's, it's done quite consistently. So I think it's time now we moved up, put another 100 on, move it up to 601, and let's have the perfect 601 game. I have suggested that to the PDC, and uh, I fully expect they'll take note shortly. Mm. Well, we'll have to wait and see. John, it's been really good to talk to you today. We've really learned a lot from you. I'm I'm so glad that I've had this moment to get to speak to you. John, uh, just before we go, is there any way we can continue to follow what you're up to through a website, through social media, or if there's anything else you'd like us to, to know about that, that you can promote, John? Yes, I've, I've got my own uh, website. It's uh, wwwjohn vaux dot com uh, i'm on twitter facebook uh, and and numerous books and of course youtube anyone that wants to watch the nine dark game or it's on the front of my site uh, and i do believe it's at one million it's a couple of weeks back on one of the recordings that's on there uh, which is the best one because that was the one where dickie davis did the interviews and uh, he was first class Fantastic. Well, John, it's been first class speaking to you. Thank you for being on the programme and thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you very much. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. It was a real honour to have John Lowe as our first ever darts guest on The Best in the World with Richard Barr. And we've had other British legends on the programme before. Maybe go back and listen to my interview with Stephen Hendry, the former snooker world champion. Of course, Darren Campbell, 
the British sprinter has been on the podcast as well, as well as the long-distance runner Liz McColgan. They've all been on the best in the world with Richard Parr. You can listen back to them at sportachino.com, also at acast.com forward slash best, and, of course, on iTunes. And if you are listening to us on iTunes, if you get a moment to give us a rating and review, I would really appreciate it. And if you haven't already, please press the subscribe button so you never miss an episode of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. All right, that's it for this week. I'll be back next week with another Olympic champion, world champion, world record holder or world number one to find out what they do differently to become the very best. I'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 